Tropical Storm Ian has moved across Florida to the Atlantic Ocean, leaving a trail of destruction in its path. Ian was a Category 4 hurricane when it made landfall in southwest Florida Wednesday afternoon. It's one of the strongest storms in the state's history. Coming up, we hear from people on the ground about the long-lasting impacts of Ian and what recovery looks like. We also head to Puerto Rico for an update from an island still reeling from a different storm. But first, we hear from Deanne Criswell. She's the administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. I spoke with Administrator Criswell the morning after Ian made landfall, and I started by asking about the status of the storm. The reports that I'm getting this morning and after talking to my leadership team early today is we know that uh, Hurricane Ian has left some truly catastrophic damage across the state of Florida, and it's still there, right? It's still causing impacts now on the East Coast. Uh, There are thousands of people that are um, in harm's way or have been impacted by this storm, and my heart just goes out to everybody. Uh, I want them to know that saving lives right now, that is our number one priority. We know that there are people that are potentially trapped and they need assistance getting out. Uh, There was so much water that came in with the storm, and we put together a really robust search and rescue capability, giving us the uh, the ability to go in by land, air, and sea to start those rescues. And they've been out since four o'clock this morning. So our focus today is on saving as many lives as we can and getting in there and getting people to safety. How quickly are federal resources being deployed to the region? Uh, So we deployed federal resources starting uh, several days ago, uh, pre-staging resources. Our search and rescue teams were pre-staged in Miami. Uh, We had teams pre-staged in Orlando. We had other teams in Tallahassee, as well as some of our commodities in Alabama. Uh, We're already starting now that the storm has passed in certain parts of the state. We're starting to move the commodities in. Again, our search and rescue teams have been out there since four o'clock this morning, and we're going to continue to move resources in as we identify what the impacts are and what the greatest needs are. We'll continue to do that throughout this recovery process. Explain a little bit more about the danger that exists for Florida residents once the storm passes. What do they still need to be concerned about? Yeah, it's a really good point to bring up. And so I I thank you for doing that because just because the storm has passed, the water is still so dangerous. There is a lot of water, a lot of standing water, but in that there's debris, there's hazardous debris, there's hazardous chemicals, there could be down power lines. And so people need to be very careful. I would say that there is no water that's safe to walk through. And so people need to stay vigilant and aware of their surroundings. One of the other things that uh, we often see after hurricanes is because the power is out, there's a lot of people that have their own generators and they provide power to their homes. Those generators need to stay outside. We're unfortunately seeing an increase in the number of carbon monoxide deaths because people are moving their generators inside and so they don't have enough ventilation. So people need to make sure that they're using those appropriately. They're putting them outside and so they're not creating additional risk to their families. Now, Administrator Chris Well, about 350,000 people in Puerto Rico remain without power after Hurricane Fiona hit the island. What's the strategy for FEMA in the weeks and months ahead for the residents of Puerto Rico. Yeah, Hurricane Fiona, again, another really significant storm. And just like we're saying now, we always see power outages as a result of these, these intense hurricanes. Uh, the power continues to get restored day by day. I was just there a week ago to check on the impacts um, from Hurricane Fiona. And I was also there um, about a month ago uh, checking on the recovery from Hurricane Maria. 
What I saw is that we've got a really cohesive team between uh, the Commonwealth as well as my FEMA staff and, and other our other federal partners. And as they were going out doing repairs to the power grid there, they are uh, doing it in a way that's making them more resilient. We're going to continue to uh, provide resources and support to the Commonwealth as they continue this stabilization process from Fiona. But we haven't slowed down on our recovery efforts um, from Maria either. Big picture, Administrator Criswell, you've got Western wildfires, Fiona in Puerto Rico, Ian stretched across multiple states. Do you have the personnel and financial capacity you need to respond to these multiple crises. Uh, You're right. There are a lot of different events that are happening across the country. We're seeing an increase in the number of wildfires that we're seeing. We're seeing storms that um, are more intense and and creating more complicated recoveries. Uh, We have a really strong, dedicated team of personnel. We surge a lot of people in in the beginning, like we're seeing right now in Florida, to help stabilize an incident. And then as we move into recovery, we have additional personnel that come in and support that part of the the, um, efforts. I think that we have a good team. We have enough people to support this response and the ongoing recovery. And we're going to continue to work um, across all of our disasters to make sure that we have the right people in place. We have other options, though, too, right? Um, For the response, we can bring in our surge capacity force, which gives us the ability to bring in uh, personnel from across the Department of Homeland Security to support our response operations if needed. Um, And our reservists, we have the majority of our workforce that goes out are reservists that do this, you know, on a part-time basis, but some of them, uh, they do this full-time because there have been so many disasters. They are such hard-working emergency managers that are really the heart of what we do, and, and they're the backbone of, of our workforce that supports these types of events. And, and what about the financial capacity piece of it? Uh, we have right now plenty of money to support this ongoing response effort right here. I'm encouraged that Congress will pass the continuing resolution to support the ongoing recovery. And if we find that the impacts of this are significant and we have to work with Congress to get additional funding, we would do that. Administrator Chris, well, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. That's FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after the break. Let's get into the conversation. Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida as a Category 4 hurricane. It was downgraded to a tropical storm early Thursday morning. It continues to batter the state, unleashing catastrophic flooding. More than 2.5 million people remain without power across the state. Joining me in studio is Tom Hudson. He's the chief content officer at WAMU. And Tom spent nearly a decade in Florida with NPR member station WLRN in Miami, where he covered multiple hurricanes, including Hurricane Irma in 2017. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jen. So you listened to that conversation with Administrator Chris Well. What did you take away in regard to what Florida residents should expect in the aftermath? I think it's what does rescue look like here in the immediate hours and few days as the storm moves on? What does the recovery effort look like? And most importantly, long-term for Florida, what does the response look like, the rebuilding effort underway? Is this going to be a Hurricane Andrew-type moment, an event for Southwest Florida to respond with building code changes, insurance regulation reforms, and the critical look at the responses. And what about that longer-term look, especially for the most vulnerable residents of the state? Very difficult. Housing affordability challenges across the state of Florida, their supply constraints when it comes to building materials, and who has access to those recovery efforts immediately from FEMA and other state agencies, let alone the longer-term financial 
financial resources that are necessary for rebuilding and repairing. Let's bring two new voices into the conversation. Joining us is Craig Fugate. He's a former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. He was also Florida's Emergency Management Division Director. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And joining us now from one of the hardest hit cities by Ian is John Davis. He's with the public radio station WGCU. It's not far from where Hurricane Ian first made landfall in southwest Florida. John, we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. John, Governor DeSantis today described the power outages in your part of the state. Lee and Charlotte are basically uh, off the grid at this point. Uh, Reconnects are really going to likely have to be rebuilding uh, of that infrastructure. And so there are linemen, there are crews that are on their way down right now. Uh, But that's going to be more than just connecting uh, a power line back back to a pole. John, you're in Fort Myers. What's happened over the past 24 hours? What are you hearing from your reporters? Um, well, I mean, over the past 24 hours, the it, it, catastrophic is, is really just an appropriate word. It, it, it really isn't sensational at all. Um, uh, the, the sheriff of Lee County, where we are, where Fort Myers is, uh, had said earlier today that the death toll was in the hundreds. Now, uh, Governor DeSantis said that number is not confirmed. Um, but at this time, it, it's, it's really just all about going out and assessing the damage, finding out what's been going on. Urban search and rescue crews um, started before daylight today. Um, I know a Lee County Commissioner, Kevin Ruane, uh, has said he received reports of people trapped in their attics. The the sheriff's office has also set up a number for people to call if they have a family member or friends that they would like to have well checks on. Um, Lots and lots of people are just trapped in their homes without power right now because of water. Uh, My mother is one of those people trapped in her home, but safe. Um, And, you know, at this time, we're, we're really just trying to wrap our heads around the scope of this. For those who stayed, you mentioned um, the power grid being down and people not having access to water. What does that mean for the conditions, people who didn't evacuate? What does it mean for what they're facing in the days ahead? Uh, Well, I think it means in the days ahead that we are going to be really reliant on any kind of aid that is coming in. I I know you were just speaking with uh, um, um, a representative of FEMA before. Right now there's, you know, boil water notices. So, you know, the water that you, if you have water, it's not safe to drink or or really use. So, um, you know, and again, with power, if if you don't have a generator, then you're just going to be without and that's going to be, uh, a long-term fix. I was speaking with a Florida Power and Light representative yesterday, and you know they're really emphasizing this is not going to be about just repairing power. This is going to be about rebuilding the energy infrastructure. So it's going to take quite some time. Uh, but again, the the response has already begun. I, I have seen video from the uh, a spouse of a coworker here who was leaving our area on a stretch of the interstate that connects between the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast. And she had taken video and you could just see coming from the other coast, um, I mean, just a, a huge convoy of vehicles, everything from Florida Power and light trucks to those uh, urban search and rescue teams, um, even some helicopters coming over. Um, and, and I got to say that 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 really felt good to see. Craig, jump in here. Well, we've learned uh, the painful lesson of estimating deaths uh, from Hurricane Andrew all the way up to more recently, if you remember, with uh, her, with the uh, tornado that struck Joplin, 
we were getting multiple lists of missing peoples, and that was being conflated into death toll into the thousands. It doesn't mean that people haven't lost their lives, but what we learned in Florida was we have a very formal system, whereas uh, you know members and, and, and bodies recovered, they're identified, the medical examiner provides a certification. And in the state of Florida, that was how we reported deaths. We would wait until the ME's office had certified that. It's a, it's a little bit slower, but it also means we're able to make the contacts to the families first, next of kin notifications before we release that information. Uh, so, again, it's a challenge to grasp this, and, and, and a lot of times when you're seeing this kind of devastation, you, you, you know you've lost lives, and trying to estimate that, uh, is, 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 is very difficult, and we're hoping that these numbers are higher than the actual. Uh, we saw that in several instances where we had higher numbers, uh, but we also have to remember what happened in Hurricane Katrina. So it's not to say this hasn't happened, but it is, you know, our, what we learned in Florida was we really had to have a formal process, uh, ensure next of kin family notifications before we released uh, the information about what the total was. And, and quite honestly, for the search and rescue teams, their priority will be the living, you know, the injured, the living, and then the recoveries. Um, and that's when we'll start getting a sense of what has happened. We're getting this question from people listening to our conversation. They, they want to know if transportation is available for people without cars to evacuate if they need to, and if there are buses to shelters, for example. John, what's happening where you are? Well, I know that there was busing being offered to shelters for people who were evacuating ahead of the storm. Unfortunately, at this time, I don't have any updates on that right now. But I can say there are curfews that remain in place throughout southwest Florida. They really don't want anybody on the roads, you know, going out and and checking the damage. Um, They really just want to keep that um, open so that rescue crews and Florida Power and Light crews can go in there and do their job. But as far as transportation, I think another big hurdle that we're going to have to overcome is that we have barrier islands that are only connected to the mainland by bridges, and they have incurred like serious damage. The Sanibel Causeway Bridge, there's like a 65-foot stretch of it that is just gone. Yeah, that image uh, is pretty startling. Yeah, um, um, and for folks on Matt Lachey, for the time being... Um, they're trapped on that island as well, um, unless they have a way of getting out by boat. Well, John, what are the most urgent needs for people in that community right now? Right now, I think the most urgent needs, again, it's going to go back to the urban search and rescue crews because, you know, we don't really have a handle on what the injuries are right now. Um, earlier, I had spoken with uh, representatives of, of a local hospital system here in southwest Florida, and it was during the storm, so it was kind of calm because the hospitals were under lockdown, but they were really bracing for whenever the all-clear was given because that is when they expected to see a surge of people coming in uh, with injuries related to the storm. Um, and also just any kind of medical emergencies that may have occurred during the hurricane. Because if you had a big stroke or a heart attack and that storm was overhead, you could call 911, but nobody was coming. Hmm. That's John Davis. He joined us from Public Radio's station WGCU, not far from where Hurricane Ian first made landfall in southwest Florida. John, thanks for stopping by. Stay safe and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Craig, from your experience as a FEMA administrator and working in Florida, 
tell us about the importance of clear communication and communication that can reach people no matter where they are or how they communicate. Well, you know, the thing I learned was you have to communicate to people the way they get their information. So what I learned, what the, the deaf and hard of hearing folks taught me in Florida was closed captioning does not work for people whose first language is American Sign Language. Um, and so we had to include signers. And once we established that practice, that kind of took off across the nation. Uh, but when we first started doing it, um, most of our conference, you know, press conferences, public, they'd be closed captioned. It wasn't helping the hard of hearing and deaf. So that taught me that. The other thing is you have to be able to speak in the languages. Um, you know, Florida has uh, a lot of different languages that we deal with. You know, people tend to think it's just Spanish, but we have everything from Creole to expatriates who live here from, you know, Germany, you know, you name it. So you got to communicate in languages and the way you do it. I mean, it's everything from uh, broadcast radio, you know, NPR stations to social media, uh, and some folks, quite honestly, if it ain't in the newspaper, they don't read it. Uh, they don't know what's happened. Uh, so it's really about who's your audience, how do they get their information, and then tailoring the message for them and being very direct. Um, uh, this is not the time to be, you know, bureaucratic in language. you got to be direct, clear, uh, and tell people what you know and what you don't know. Let's move north now to the city of Jacksonville in the northeast tip of Florida. Joining us is Melissa Ross from public radio station WJCT. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Jen. So you're about 300 miles away from where Ian first made landfall. But Governor DeSantis said today, central Florida, all the way to Jacksonville, will see Ian's impacts. The amount of water that's been rising and will likely continue to rise today, even as the storm is passing, uh, is basically a 500-year flood event. So, Melissa, what are you seeing now and what conditions are you expecting? I'll tell you what, Jen, the flooding has already begun in historic St. Augustine. The seawall there has already been breached and we're seeing uh, incredible scenes of water flowing right into the main tourist corridor, the main tourist thoroughfare of St. Augustine, a historic city south of Jacksonville, and one that's particularly vulnerable to coastal flooding. We expected this, but keep in mind, it's not even high tide yet. High tide is still about an hour away. So uh, the flooding in St. Augustine and St. John's County is expected to worsen as we go throughout the day. St. John's County, Nassau County, Clay County, all uh, counties that surround Jacksonville, Jacksonville, what you might call collar counties around Jacksonville, are all under mandatory evacuation orders. Duval County is not as yet, although everyone in Jacksonville proper is watching and waiting for Ian's effects to really arrive. And, you know, let's keep in mind that in this city, People have very uh, bad memories of what happened here five years ago when Hurricane Irma caused historic inland flooding in Jacksonville, the worst flooding in this city's 250-year history. That was caused by nor'easter-like conditions that actually occurred after most people had assumed the worst effects of Irma had passed through. Uh, Powerful rain bands combined with easterly high gusts of winds, that pushed water into the St. John's River Basin during high tide. And that caused 
historic neighborhoods in Jacksonville to be absolutely devastated by flooding. These are the neighborhoods that line uh, the river in the downtown area, the urban core area. These are older historic neighborhoods with older infrastructure. A lot has been done in the intervening five years to shore up those neighborhoods and better protect them. The city now has a more robust resiliency plan than it did before, has a resiliency officer. All of that said, though, people are watching and waiting, concerned about both inland and coastal flooding in North Florida from Ian. So how are residents preparing for the coming hours and the impact of the storm? There have been enormous volunteer efforts to sandbag volunteer, uh, excuse me, sandbag vulnerable neighborhoods, Jen, in particular a north side neighborhood called Ken Knight Drive, uh, which was absolutely devastated by Irma five years ago. Uh, There are pumps already working in neighborhoods like San Marco, uh, a historic uh, area along the St. Johns River. Uh, Of course, uh, fire and rescue crews, utility crews are out. Uh, Sandbagging is continuing apace all over town. And it's a watching and a waiting game at this point. Uh, Power outages, by the way, have already started to happen in our part of Florida. I think you've mentioned more than two and a half million people in Florida are without power. Well, that actually already includes tens of thousands in North Florida. And that's expected to worsen as the day goes on, of course. Well, that's Melissa Ross from Public Radio Station WJCT in Jacksonville. Melissa, thanks for joining the conversation. Take care. Thanks so much. Craig, how are emergency services best divided to help communities that are in the recovery process while others are waiting for the full impact of the storm? Well, one of the lessons, and it goes all the way back to Hurricane Andrew that Florida learned this, we have to really look at all of our local governments as part of a state team. So there is a very strong mutual aid system that allows state uh, agencies and and county and city agencies to rapidly move resources around the state. So while, you know, this storm is primarily focused, the impacts as we're seeing now into southwest Florida, that's why you saw all those resources coming out of the Miami-Dade area. Uh, There's a lot, you know, big cities, big fire departments, a lot of resources. And so as soon as they got the all clear on their side, they were going across uh, what we call Alligator Alley to go do that response. Uh, teams from uh, West Florida will be moving into other areas, and they're also reaching out to neighboring states. I mean, we often, as as much as I was at FEMA, everybody thinks it's always FEMA. And the reality is 90% of the response that you are seeing today are local governments, state agencies, Florida National Guard, everything from high-wheel vehicles and and those barrier islands. They got the helicopters to start flying supplies and teams in there. Coming up as Ian continues to rain down on Florida, misinformation on social media pours down as well. But first we head to Puerto Rico and get an update from an island still recovering from the effects of Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Fiona. More from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back into the conversation. As millions of Floridians start their recovery from Hurricane Ian, millions of Puerto Ricans are recovering from the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona almost two weeks ago and Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island in 2017. Dr. Michelle Carlo joins us from Puerto Rico. She works as a medical advisor for the charity Direct Relief. Dr. Carlo, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you so much for having me back. We heard from FEMA's administrator at the beginning of the hour about the ongoing efforts to help those still without power in Puerto Rico. And I asked Administrator Chriswell to respond to concerns that those on the island weren't getting the same level of support that was being deployed in Florida. We want to make sure that we are sending the right resources for the problems that they are facing, right? And we know that with territories like Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands or even out in Guam, the time and distance just creates additional logistical challenges to getting resources out there, but it doesn't slow us down. We know what their problems are. We're working hand in hand with the Commonwealth and we're moving the right resources to fix the problems that they have. We are not withholding anything from them. Dr. Carla, what's been your experience in Puerto Rico around FEMA's response? Um, Well, I first thank you for having us again. And I want to tell Floridians that we are very sympathetic to what they're going through. Um, We almost feel like they're reliving what we lived through, Maria. So I just wanted to send that out because I know you have people listening from Florida. Um, In terms of the FEMA response in the island, um, in in a way, yes, we we have had FEMA presence since the beginning. But if you think about it, this was a storm, but in certain areas of Puerto Rico, including the metro area, there was not even branches that fell off. This affected mostly the central and southwestern part of the island. And There are still people in Puerto Rico that have no power, for example. So we're talking 10 days out of the storm. My power just got, I just got power back yesterday and I live in the metro area. And uh, so so in a way, yes, but it's almost disproportionate the amount of time that has taken to restore power in some areas to the damage that didn't happen. And again, I feel funny speaking about this because I know what our Floridian brothers are going through, and it's tough to hear and watch. Um, uh, I know, especially because that part of Central Florida, and Florida has over a million Puerto Ricans, so it's it's super hard to hear from them. What are the greatest needs still on the island? Um, The greatest needs in the island is to restore power to these communities that are in the mountains, and in the southwestern part of coast of the island. Um, if you think about it, we went to visit a community in Salinas, a, an area greatly affected. Um, you know, poor people living in these small houses. And this was about a week out of the storm, after the storm, last Saturday, so um, exactly a week. They didn't have power, they did not have water. So it was almost impossible for them to get back on their feet. They couldn't get a four feet of mud cleaned from their houses because they didn't have water. So we had to bring in water trucks. We had to bring in all these volunteers to help people bring out all their damaged appliances and basically um, try to get started from zero. Uh, So the biggest need is for these people to get access to water and power so they can start rebuilding Assessing what is it that they need to uh, to request from federal aid or state level aid so that they can get back on their feet. That's Dr. Michelle Carlo. She works as a medical advisor for the charity Direct Relief. Dr. Carlo, thanks for the update. Thank you so much for having me. Let's bring another guest into our conversation, Shauna Davis. She's a journalist with Reuters Fact Check Team. Shauna, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, Shauna, you've said extreme weather events tend to surface misinformation with miscaptioned clips and images shared online. How and why does misinformation spread faster during natural disasters? 
I think one of the main reasons is that in times of high emotion and a natural disaster will be one of those times, people tend to click the share button far faster than they would previously because they could be scared, they could be frightened or confused. And so they are thinking that they're helping their family or friends without taking that step back. So that's one of the key drivers to that. The other element is that there is a big flow of information. So people are talking about a particular topic. And when there's a big flow of information, misinformation can seep through too. So those are just two facets uh, of the reason why you'll see, for example, miscaptioned videos gaining significant traction online during a storm event. Tom, you've covered a lot of hurricanes. How do you think misinformation and sometimes disinformation can compromise people's safety or decision-making processes during or after a hurricane. Life and death decisions, it can be devastating. And with the continued proliferation of social media, uh, it can be awfully easy. The flood of data, the flood of information, updates from the National Hurricane Center, updates from the National Weather Service, updates from the local emergency management agency, and from FEMA putting together uh, its own page. Those are terrific, but increasingly... The news diet of so many people is user-generated content. I happened to be speaking today in a class earlier today with 18, 19, 20-year-olds in South Florida asking them where did they get information to prepare for the storm? TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp chats. It wasn't my NPR station. It wasn't the weather channel. It was user-generated content, life and death consequences with misinformation, disinformation, and it is... It is uh, so dangerous, and it is dangerous because it then raises questions about legitimate news and information sources like FEMA, like the National Weather Center, uh, the National Hurricane Center, and NPR stations. It makes our job that much more difficult. Well, and, and just in the fire hose of information so many of us are exposed to, what other tips do you have for how to spot misinformation and stop ourselves from sharing it? Taking a step back, first and foremost. But the second reason, or the second the second thing you could do, is to check the comment section. Because when something is really viral or something is gaining traction, you're going to have one or two people who are going to spot and say, hey, I've seen this before. Hey, that's not what FEMA said, or that's inaccurate. So you're going to have people who will spot the mis- and disinformation. So scrolling down and just seeing what the conversation is underneath a particular post is really, really helpful. But the next thing you can do is just do a really quick Google search. So take yourself out of the social media feed and just taking a step back and saying, has somebody covered this in the news or, or has this been in the news previously? And the last thing you can do is do a reverse image search if it comes to particular footage that's circulating online. And what that is, it takes about 30 seconds. It's um, screen grabbing a particular video or image and checking to see whether that's been shared previously. Um, you'll have, you know, for example, articles that have contained a p- particular piece of content or social media footage, but it's from years previously. So those are just three key steps. But the the main thing isn't to share something immediately. It's just taking a step back, going to reliable sources, um, and just checking to see uh, what the authentic news is. That's Shauna Davis. She's a journalist with the Reuters Fact Check team. Shauna, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tom, as we've been hearing about the repairs to infrastructure that will be needed in Florida in the aftermath of this storm, is there a larger conversation to be had about not just building back, but building back more resiliently in the face of likely more storms like this? The conversation immediately returns to rebuilding. Uh, the The part of that conversation in the weeks and months ahead is going to be about reinforcing. And then perhaps in months, in years, 
after another storm or another threat, perhaps it gets to retreating. Mm -hmm. Uh, This particular stretch of southwest Florida, folks who come visit Florida, Sanibel Island, Captiva, these are gorgeous, beautiful, broad beaches with zero entry almost into the uh, wonderful warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. But that has allowed uh, 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 folks to come and invest, certainly, uh, uh, into real estate, into homes, into businesses. And we see the cost of that. We're going to see the cost of that in the days and weeks ahead as we put price tags on that. And the rebuilding efforts are going to be uh, immediate. That's the response here. But for regulators, uh, uh, residents, and others, the real question is going to be, what is the science telling us? about the continued vulnerability and the continued cost of capital, public resources, and private capital that are being continued to be put into harm's way. Well, and what are the politics around that discussion? Very difficult everywhere, and particularly difficult in Florida, a state that makes uh, you know its name on hospitality and real estate primarily, and bringing those folks, bringing uh, you know, 100 million visitors into Florida each year. We've seen a, 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 a continued immigration into Florida uh, during the pandemic, lots of new real estate investment that has happened, lots of new real estate development that's happened. It's pushing uh, uh, land use uh, uh, rules to the limit uh, in a place like Florida, which is naturally very wet in the best of days. So as Florida moves into this rescue and recovery period of time, I just want to again reiterate, what do people in the area need to keep in mind? They need to keep in mind right now safety. They need to keep in mind the safety of themselves. Communications are going to be very important. And for those folks that aren't in the, the path of this storm, donations, support, and uh, continued conversation about the type of recovery these communities will want to have. That's Tom Hudson. He's the chief content officer at WAMU. He's also former host of the Florida Roundup, where he covered multiple hurricanes in the state. Today's producers were June Leffler, Chris Remington, and Maya Garg. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.